Hi, it's Ricky DeRiz. Welcome to the third episode of the Mind That Ego podcast. People with winter depression, it might breed a sense of helplessness that I'm sort of a victim of this. It's just all about the short days and my biology reacts to that in terms of my circadian clock slowing down and whatever. And again, I don't dispute that. But the good news, I think, from the cognitive behavioral perspective is that there are some things that you can do to at least alleviate the symptoms and cope better with the winter. Today's guest is Dr. Kelly Rowan. Kelly is an expert in seasonal affective disorder. She's a psychologist and the director of the clinical training department at the University of Vermont. Today's topic is banishing the winter blues. Kelly, welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, I'd like to start with a, a very serious question, an important question. Um, how's the weather where you are? Oddly enough, it is now September in Vermont. We should be in autumn. The leaves are just beginning to turn color. However, the high is expected to be 86 degrees here today. And sun, wall-to-wall sunshine, and this weather should continue through very the nice. weekend. So we're very, very nice. much still in summer Hello, global warming, I think. This, yeah. is, this is quite unusual for Vermont right now. Yeah, I'm, we're the same in Berlin. It's, it's, I think it's going to be 28 degrees Celsius next. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. But yeah, the sun is still shining, fortunately. Yeah, I can't imagine there's too many people with winter depression who are feeling very depressed right now. The weather is so, just yeah. too nice. It's too nice. It's too nice. Um, so to just start, would it be possible to give some background in your area of research? Because the topic for today is the, the winter blues and generally how the seasons can, can affect mood. So could you give some background on the research you've done over the years? Sure. I first got interested in seasonal affective disorder and I'm going to just refer to it as sad from here on out, if that's mm-hmm. okay. When yeah, I was absolutely. a graduate student at the University of Maine, which is very far north in the United States. It's one of our northernmost states. In fact, there are parts of Maine that are south of Canada, if you study the geography of the United Mm. States. And I was working in a depression lab and noticed that we had plenty of people to study in the fall and the winter, but come spring and summer, you could hear the crickets in the lab. We just didn't Mm. have the subjects. So I noticed the seasonal pattern and the ebb and flow of our ability to recruit depressed patients. And this was about the time I was looking for a dissertation study idea and approached my mentor and said, how about if I begin focusing on winter depression? It was a relatively new phenomenon at this time. This was in the early 1990s. There wasn't a whole Mm. lot of research that was available and I saw the opportunity for a cognitive behaviorally minded psychologist to bring a fresh perspective because the field was really dominated by biological psychiatrists, photobiologists, people really interested in the biological component, circadian rhythms. But I saw an opportunity to bring a fresh perspective by focusing on thinking styles and behavior patterns. So this led to a whole series of not just my dissertation, but a whole series of studies looking at whether people with winter depression also show negative thinking styles and the pattern of withdrawing their behavior and retreating when they feel depressed. And it turned out that they did. So this Mm. led the path to then start to apply cognitive behavioral therapy 
a talk therapy that targets these negative thinking styles and behaviors as a treatment alternative. So I've embarked down this road since about 1994, and I've really not looked back. (laughs) I've really just continued on this program of research. Mm. Of course, when you do clinical trials, it's very labor intense. It takes a lot of time. A lot of people advise against putting all your eggs in one basket when it Mm. comes to developing a research program. But because it's been so labor intense to do these clinical trials, I really haven't had much of a choice but to put all my eggs in one basket. Lucky for me, the story has panned out. So the research program has been productive now since that time. And I guess this is this is a, a big development as well, because the, the biology, so from I guess my perspective as, as someone who has a, a basic knowledge in it, the biology makes a lot of sense there's less daylight and you're, you're oh not yes absolutely it's, it's really interesting that the thinking processes have such an important role too mm-hmm. yeah and I don't dispute that the environmental trigger for these winter depression episodes is a short photo period a short mm-hmm. amount of time from sunrise to sunset that's the trigger and there's a very clear circadian component where the biological clock perhaps doesn't regulate the way that it should, and people have winter depression. In response to that, circadian rhythms get out of whack and depression symptoms set in. That's sort of established dogma that there's a role for that. The novel contribution that my work made, and now others or other people also exploring these things, is that we also see people with winter depression ruminate, get very negative in their thinking styles about winter lack of light, weather, but also Mm. just negative about things that are happening in their day-to-day lives in the winter when they're experiencing these symptoms. They also withdraw their activity level. I think of it as going into hibernation mode. What I commonly see in in these individuals who suffer from this is they come out of work, and here in Vermont on the winter solstice, the sun is down at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So they come out of work, it's dark, go home, get under a blanket on the couch, and go into mindless television watching mode, which isn't really bringing a sense of enjoyment, and Mm. is just really propagating, feeding that depressive mood. So the idea that these behavioral patterns and thoughts are at least correlated with these symptoms was novel at the time in the Mm. early 1990s when people were only interested in the biological components involving circadian dysregulation and so on. And and the beauty of that is once you can identify that, it's the control to a degree. You you know you can influence it and help, you know, improve that by, by this kind of restructuring of thought. Yes, absolutely. So light therapy, I'm sure we'll be talking more about later on, but, um, you know, it doesn't really teach you anything other than, hey, the days are now short. I probably ought to get out the light box and start using it faithfully through the Mm. winter months until I feel better. A treatment such as cognitive behavioral therapy does teach you something and it gives you a sense of agency over your symptoms where there are things in my control that I can do to improve my mood in the winter. If I can look out for my negative thoughts and try to make them a bit more positive or at least more Mm. neutral, and if I can use my activity level to engage with things that are enjoyable in the winter, that's a way to get some control 
over mood to feel yeah. better. So I think it's a quite empowering therapy in that respect. Yeah, and that's that's the, the, the aim and, and what I'd love to get from our discussion today is for anyone listening who feels that they really do struggle is to get some kind of takeaway and, and that empowerment is really important, feeling that it's possible to make that change. Um, yeah, you can see how people with winter depression, it might breed a sense of helplessness that I'm sort of a victim of this. It's mm. just all about the short days and my biology reacts to that in terms of my circadian clock slowing down and whatever. And again, I don't dispute that. But the good news, I think, from the cognitive behavioral perspective is that there are some things that you can do to at mm. least alleviate the symptoms and cope better with the winter. Because after all, it's going to roll around every year. Yeah, that's the thing. You've got to get used to it because it's not going to, unless you just manage to move somewhere where there are no seasons. Yes. Um, and I've been in the field long enough. I've seen people do that. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen yeah. people relocate to Mexico. And I mean, that's great if you can do it, but yeah. most people are living where they are because there's good reasons to live there. They have established careers or they have, mm. you know, families who are embedded in the community. So relocation is not going to be a realistic option for most people. So for, for those people listening who, who can't move and <laughs> a little bit apprehensive for the upcoming uh, winter, what I'd like for us to do is, is initially to explore seasonal affective disorder, but then to a lesser, lesser extent winter blues. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure these people exist, people that actually enjoy winter. I'm not sure where they are. They must, they must be out there somewhere. But if we could get an overview initially of... How, how on a, a spectrum does SAD, where does it sit in, in comparison to, to what most people would associate with winter blues? So like most things, seasonality, which is the degree to which your mood and behavior fluctuates as a function of what season it is, is on a continuum. It's pretty normally distributed in the general population, especially at a high latitude. You would expect that most people would endorse some symptoms that would be consistent with seasonal affective disorder, including things like feeling less energetic, perhaps a change in sleeping towards sleeping a bit more than usual, perhaps some changes in appetite, particularly craving and eating more carbohydrate-rich foods, the starches and the sugars, these kinds of symptoms would be normal at a high latitude. And in fact, we would expect people at a high latitude to endorse symptoms such as those. Mm. So when we're talking about winter depression, we're talking about depression in the winter yeah. with a full threshold of what it means to have clinical depression symptoms. So I think it's good we're talking about this early on. We don't want people who are listening to freak out necessarily <laughs> if they're hearing some symptoms that sound personally relevant to them. That would be expected at a high latitude like you are at and like I'm at. It's going to yeah. be a minority of people who really have a clinical depression in the winter. These terms winter blues means that people have symptoms, but they're not severe enough, impairing enough to qualify as full-blown winter depression. And that's really important too, the the expectation that you're just not going to have the same energy and you may be sleeping more and you may your diet may change. And perhaps that can, I'm thinking of, of me personally, that certainly ties in sometimes of this expectation of why don't I feel the same as in summer? 
but it is completely normal, as you say, to have seasonality and to to have a bit of a dip in energy. Yeah, it's to be expected. And again, it does come back to that biological model that the mm. days are shorter. The body is reacting to that in terms of circadian rhythms. So if you're just tired and sleeping a bit more and craving carbohydrates at a northern latitude, you're just like everybody else. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you have sad if yeah. you have a lot of symptoms, including a pervasive depressed mood, a loss of interest in most things, a difficulty concentrating, a significant sleep change. The, the patients that I work with are sleeping at least an extra hour a night, often more. Mm. I've talked to people who are sleeping up to 14, 16 hours a day, especially when we factor in all the naps that they're taking kind of recharge the batteries a bit yeah a lot of negative thinking is also part of that depressive picture as we've been alluding to including a lot of guilty thoughts that really inhibit self-esteem and get in the way of functioning and of course sometimes thoughts of death or suicide which is a Mm. clinical symptom that presents in depression people with winter depression are not immune from that They have it less than people with non-seasonal depression. About 70% of people with non-seasonal depression endorse suicidal ideation or thoughts Mm. of suicide. And in sad patients, it's only about 30%, so roughly one-third. That's less. It's still a substantial proportion that we should be concerned about, obviously, Mm. with regard to suicide risk. However, I believe what's going on there is there's a light at the end of the tunnel for people with winter depression. And that light is, of course, spring. Yeah. So the symptoms yeah. are more temporary. They know that they're going to come out of it. Whereas in non-seasonal depression, it's unknown. <laughs> when am I going to come yeah. out of this? So it tends to breed more hopelessness. Which is, a, yeah, a key element of depression, of course, is that sense of hopelessness. And if yes. that can, if it, if you are aware that your mood is linked to the seasons, you can you can kind of look ahead. Um, with in terms of cognitive behavioural therapy, this is something I expect quite a few listeners won't be overly familiar with. Um, would you be able to give just a, a brief overview of of what CBT is generally, and and also related to SAD? Sure. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a treatment paradigm that's been around for a long time. It was developed in the 1960s. The basic idea underlying cognitive behavioral therapy, if we take that term and break it down into its component parts, we have cognitive therapy, which seeks to identify, challenge, and change negative thoughts that people have when they're depressed or anxious or whatever psychopathology it is that we're dealing with. And we have them do this by writing their thoughts down, keeping a thought log or a thought diary that includes what thoughts they had, what was happening, what was the situation they were in that seemed to trigger those thoughts, and how were they feeling in response to those thoughts. The patients bring the thought diaries into the sessions, and we use a method called the Socratic method, used in honor of Socrates, the Greek philosopher, Mm. who had this way of training his students where he would make them think if they presented statements, he would say, now, what's the evidence for that? (laughs) What's the evidence (laughs) against that? Is there any other way to view that to kind of get the thought Mm. to be the most accurate that it can be? 
So the process is very much like that. We kind of pick away at these thoughts, the negative ones, the negative automatic thoughts that patients report. And by virtue of doing that, we're hoping to change the emotions that ensue. Initially, negative thoughts tend to breed a lot of negative emotions like sadness, anger, frustration, anxiety. Mm -hmm. And as we work on the thoughts using the Socratic method, we can see those anxiety ratings and so on go down. So somebody might initially be at 100% sad in reaction to a negative thought. But through all of this questioning process, we hope to bring that number down by arriving at a more accurate, more neutral less negative thought, and we call this a rational response. Mm. So that's cognitive therapy 101 in a nutshell. That's kind of what we do. And the other side of CBT is the B, the behavior yeah, therapy. Behavioral. So what we do there in, in the case of depression, we're looking for ways that people engage in pleasant activities, and we're trying to schedule those pleasurable activities back into life because they tend to fall by the wayside in depression. There's the symptom of losing interest in things mm. that are usually enjoyed. People with SAD almost universally have this symptom, in my experience. People with SAD tend to have enjoyable activities that are very summer-centric, things like beachcombing, being outside in general, growing elaborate gardens in the backyard. Mm. And we have to have a replacement activity for those when the condition is winter. It's not going to be possible to do some of those things, at least not yeah. without significantly modifying them so that they can be done. So we're looking for things that are activities that are feasible, they're available, they can provide a sense of enjoyment and building them back into the person's life. It's baby steps, though, where initially we have people do just 10 minutes a day of something that's enjoyable and go through the motions. The enjoyment isn't going to come rushing back necessarily all at once. You might have to go through the motions for a few weeks before that sense of enjoyment comes back. But the mm -hmm. research shows that it does come back gradually over time. And I always ask people, even if they're not overjoyed by a pleasant activity, but what's the alternative? What would you be doing instead of taking that 10-minute walk? And if the answer is something that would continue to feed the depression, then yeah, it's better yeah. to do the activity than to not do the activity. And it's the idea of just taking action. Because for a lot of us, we identify with thought. And if we identify with thoughts telling us uh, it's, it's too much effort or it's too cold or I haven't got the energy, that's where the, the cycle can become quite vicious and, and you can kind of sink into deeper depression. I oh, guess. yes. The cognitive and the behavioral, the reason that we do them so frequently together is exactly that. They do tend mm. to go together when you're in this pattern of, I call it hibernation and sad patients. You're thinking very negatively when you're yeah. in that pattern. And when you're thinking negatively, you don't tend to be out there thinking of proactive ways to make yourself feel better. So the cognitive behavioral therapy is a nice kind of one-two punch against mm. both of those triggers for depression. And um, what would you what would you say to someone who was struggling to take action if they were in a depressive state? 
and the thought of taking action was so overwhelming. They just really couldn't separate from the thinking processes and, and the ability to kind of act against them. If, do you have procedures in place to encourage people to, to take action in those situations? In the case of winter depression, I would advise people to start early. Again, let's not delude ourselves. Winter will happen every year. <laughs> so we can prepare for it. So if you know you have history of this problem, I would start thinking about it in August, even though you're still feeling good to have a plan in place, you know, that I have history of this problem. I know that. So I'm going to go ahead and make an appointment with a mental health provider, whether it's a psychologist to pursue cognitive behavioral therapy or a psychiatrist to pursue medications or possibly light therapy. Get on it early. Don't wait until you're in the depths of a major depressive episode and try to dig yourself out. Mm. Prevention is a lot easier than treatment. So that would be my first piece of advice for depression like this that is predictable. Mm. If you do wait and find yourself in the depths of a depression and you're having this inner conversation with yourself, my tendency would be to go cognitive. What are those thoughts that are getting in the way? Is it thoughts like, I don't deserve to help myself. Um, here I go again. It's just hopeless. I can't do anything. Well, what mm -hmm. would Socrates say? Socrates <laughs> would say, what's the evidence for that? I mean, it's yeah. a little bit hard to do cognitive therapy on yourself, but without the assistance of a trained therapist, but you might be able to replace some of those negative thoughts with more positive thoughts, such as I do deserve this and better late than never, better that I, I get on this now and maybe have a productive end to the winter than just slog my way through another winter. You might also yeah. rely on significant others for support. If there are friends and family members who are pointing out that one has this pattern, they may be able to support you in some way in seeking out appropriate resources. And it is, um, I think it's important, it's cognitive behavioral therapy is actually something I used to a degree with some of my clients as a coach, not in depth, of course, not to the extent of therapy, but this structured way of unraveling thought is so effective and, and so important. And it, what I, what I love about CBT is something I've also had therapy that involved CBT for depression, anxiety, and, and find it immensely valuable, really, really valuable. And what I like is how you identify common distortions in thought and the cognitive distortions that are fairly universal in, in the kind of unhelpful thinking, um, such as catastrophizing and, and mm -hmm. certain, certain categories. Are there any of these distortions that you you notice more frequently in SAD? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they can all be there, but some of the most frequent ones would include what you called catastrophizing. I use the term more frequently, magnification, but it's the same idea. It's the making the mountain out of the mohill, mm. putting on those dark colored glasses and seeing everything in really kind of negative terms. And we see a lot of this surrounding the view of the winter season, a really global negative view about winter. 
that, you know, winter is just terrible yeah. would be an example of a thought that would be magnification. And our patients tend to sit and, and sit with these thoughts. So just imagine it's dark, you're in a full-blown major depressive episode, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, this is terrible. Do you feel better or worse as a consequence of that thought? Um, mm. Probably worse or neutral, certainly not better those negative global thoughts about winter. Similarly, a lot of dichotomous thinking, which is the putting things into black-white categories. So winter is all bad and <laughs> summer is all good. On the other in. hand, we, we see a lot of almost hyper-positive thoughts about summer as yeah. well as really global negative thoughts about winter. Another one is fortune-telling, which is that distortion that involves looking into the crystal ball and foreseeing only negative things in the future. So for example, waking up on a morning where it's overcast, maybe it's particularly cold or even beginning to snow and making an immediate decision about the implications of that and how you're going to feel mm -hmm. for the rest of the day. That because the weather is like this, today is going to be just terrible. I won't be mm -hmm. able to function. I won't be able to perform in that meeting and work and yeah. making all of these predictions that are only negative is the distortion of fortune telling. I would say those are big three that we see mm. more often than not in this particular population. It's quite, it's quite, um, it's quite scary to see how many I'm familiar with personally <laughs> on, that, on that list as well. <laughs> And again, we're at a high latitude. So some of yeah. these things that we're talking about are going to resonate with people, whether or not they have full-blown seasonal affective disorder. And that is, that's a key point because in my experience, I'm by no means an expert, but with these thinking processes, of course, they have a huge value for, for people who are really in the midst of, of depression or know that they have a clinical depression but in your experience does this same approach at restructuring thought does it benefit anyone I, I feel like it is something that can benefit all of us because we mm -hmm. have a kind of negative bias yeah I, I firmly believe that the basics of the cognitive model the idea that it's not events that trigger emotions it's how you interpret those events. Yeah. And you can see examples of this just by looking around you on any given day. I always use the metaphor when I'm explaining the cognitive model to people for the first time of sitting in traffic. <laughs> Look at yeah. how differently people react to sitting in a traffic jam. Some people are laying on the horn and shaking their fists out the window. It shouldn't be this way. So their automatic thoughts are obviously very negative that this is an inconvenience to me. Everyone should get out of my way. I'm late. I've got places to go. Mm. And then you look around and there's other people who look kind of neutral. Uh, maybe they're thinking this is an inconvenience, but I'll get there eventually. And then you see people who are car dancing and look like they're having the time of their life. So their thoughts must be quite positive, mm. like, oh, good, I didn't want to get to that meeting anyways. Now I have more time <laughs> to enjoy my favorite song on the radio or whatever it is that they're doing. So the idea that it's the interpretation of events and not events themselves that lead to our affective state and influence what we're going to do in reaction is an idea with intuitive appeal. You can explain this model to people. It makes sense. 
And it makes good sense to patients. They're kind of on board immediately when you mm-hmm. explain, okay, so what we need to do is then take a look at those thoughts and see if we can work together to make them a little bit less negative, a little more neutral at the very least. We don't want to become Pollyannas and make everything overly rosy and tell ourselves things that we don't believe, mm. but we can probably negotiate a happy medium. And that is an important distinction between CBT and positive affirmations, for example. I guess you're actually yes. really doing it in a very structured way that is balanced, not just, no, it's fine, everything's good. Right. You know? so, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, I don't really feel this way. <laughs> I think that's a common misunderstanding about CBT, that it's just positive affirmations, like, you know, the power of positive thinking, telling ourselves nice things. In CBT, we only want to tell ourselves things that we believe. So when we arrive at a rational response, it has to be believable to the person because it's not going to have any effect to tell yourself something you don't believe. Let's take the thought, I hate winter. The very first cognitive behavioral therapy for sad group that I ever ran back in 2000. Wow, that was a long time ago. (laughs) We were going around the room. the, The patients who were involved were introducing themselves And um, it got to be this one woman's turn. And she said, you know, hello, everyone. My name is so-and-so. And and I hate winter. And Mm. everybody clapped. (laughs) All of the other patients clapped. And this was my very first CBT for SAD group where I was just piloting the idea to see, is this even going to work? I think I had a mini panic attack. It didn't show probably, but my reaction, my automatic thought was, oh my gosh, you know, look what I'm up against. (laughs) These negative thoughts are so, if that's resonating so strongly with everyone in the room that they need to applaud, that's a really significant thought. Obviously, it's magnification would Mm. be the cognitive distortion there. So that's such a common thought. If we could replace that with a rational response, such as, I prefer summer to winter. Now, sad patients will believe that. In fact, if I ask them to rate from zero to 100, how much do you believe that? They'll probably say 100 or close (laughs) to it. But notice how neutral it is. If you're in a major depression, you're in hibernation mode, and you repeat to yourself over and over again, I hate winter, Mm. you're going to feel worse, not better. I can almost guarantee it. But if when that thought surfaces, you replace it with, I prefer summer to, summer to winter, that's a more neutral thought that shouldn't at least make you feel worse. Maybe it has mm-hmm. no effect, but it either makes you feel better or leaves you the same. It doesn't make you feel worse. And that kind of rumination is so common with depression as well, the, the kind of thinking over and over again with that really strong use of language can just react. Yeah, Yes. Yeah, I guess we've used the term rumination a few times now without really defining it. But Mm. what it is, is a repetitive, negative thinking process where you're kind of wallowing in your negative thoughts and not able to get out of them. It's like a record that just plays over and over and over again. We have decades of research on rumination in the field of depression to show that it is incredibly toxic when college students are induced to feel sad in laboratory settings by playing dysphoric music or having them think of a personally relevant sad memory. 
And then they're instructed to ruminate afterwards about how they feel. They feel worse Mm. after ruminating than if they're told to distract following a negative mood induction, to do something about something else to get your mind off of how you're feeling or do something else, then they feel better. So that's a nice experimental paradigm where you can randomize people to ruminate or not, which kind of establishes causality. It seems that ruminating just breeds depression. And then in depressed patients, we also have decades of research to show the more people ruminate, the more likely they are to get depressed over Mm. time, including full-blown clinical depression. So it's an incredibly toxic cognitive process that really needs to be interrupted to help improve mood. And I guess the, the, there are a few steps with the CBT. Um, and I know in my experience, mindfulness and meditation is really good for, I guess, giving a bit of room between I'm, I'm, I'm not these thoughts. These thoughts aren't necessarily true and kind of providing some space with that as well. It's interesting. I'm intrigued by the idea of mindfulness interventions. They're getting a lot of attention in the field of mental health and in depression Mm. in particular. No one has really run with that ball in the field specifically of seasonal affective disorder, but I could see a rationale for doing it. Mm. For example, when people with sad wake up in the morning, they do tend to take a look outside and make this determination about how they're going to feel, as we've discussed for the rest of the day, depending on the kinds of stimuli that they see. Is it sunny or is it overcast? Is it cold or is it warm? So I kind of have this fantasy about someday testing a mindfully looking out the window experience in sad patients. If they could just look at those stimuli and consider it as information without immediately putting a label on it that, you know, it's either good slash happy or bad slash depressed. Just consider it as information and not get reactive to it, not get sucked into negative thinking patterns Mm. in the case of an overcast kind of sky staring back at them. I can see some real utility for that. However, it's not been empirically tested One of the therapists who was involved in my last clinical trial has a private practice in the community. So this this person was administering the CBT-SAD intervention, but also has a private practice in the Burlington, Vermont community focused on mindfulness practice. And he told me continuously in the course of supervision for the study that he thought the mindfulness stuff was all over my protocol. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really see it that way when I was writing the protocol, but we are trying to interrupt these negative thinking styles and these ingrained habits. So I guess we are kind of changing the way people respond to seasonal stimuli. I didn't really couch it as, oh, this is a mindfulness intervention, but I can kind of see his point that there are pieces of it interwoven into the CBT for SAD protocol. Yeah, I can as well, because you're you're working on really breaking down. And as you say, with like the looking out of the window example, that's a really beautiful exercise that would have a lot of value. You're looking and not just placing judgment on, oh, it's a gray sky. Mm-hmm. And it, it can it can all melt into one. And I feel like if you each day you have this thought, oh, it's another dark day, it's raining again. 
you can almost block out the times where well, today it's not raining and it's not as grey as it was yesterday. The clouds have actually parted a little bit throughout the day. There's sunshine at 12 and then it kind of changes. Um, and I guess yeah. that's the mindful approach, just looking at the real intricacies of the weather. Right. And just letting it, letting it be. Just considering it information that mm. doesn't have to pull a specific affective response. And we actually have some data that's consistent with this. We've been doing some experimental studies where we get sad patients to view digital photographs of outdoor scenes that vary in what season is it. So the summer scenes have everything's green, of course. Mm. The winter scenes is all, you know, barren here in Vermont. We call it stick season when all of the <laughs> leaves have fallen off. Yeah. And then we get stimuli where the sky is bright blue and, you know, full sun and then some that are very overcast. And in this kind of paradigm, we see people with SAD are very reactive to the overcast and winter stimuli. And we see it in their self-report in terms of how they say they feel, but we also see it in their psychophysiology, their emotional channels mm. of responding that are more physiologically based. So, for example, more galvanic skin responses, sweat coming out of the fingers, which mm. is indicative of an autonomic arousal, the fight-flight system kind of kicking yeah, in. Just, just for me. And we can... Yes, and we can see it in their facial muscles also. There's this muscle called the corrugator. It's right over your eyebrow. And even though it wouldn't be visible to the naked eye, they contract that muscle. So this is the, the scowling or um, frowning muscle. It's very specific to depression. And when we show those winter and dark stimuli, there's more contractions in that muscle, and they're producing a higher galvanic skin response. So even their bodies... Yeah are reacting in a way that would signal this is something aversive. They're emotionally reactive to what they're seeing. And that's, that's fascinating as well. Cause I'm assuming with those trials, the, the season that was actually going on outside when they, those experiments were taking place or almost. You know, what's redundant. interesting is we see these responses, no matter what season. Yeah. We test people with SAD in and healthy controls, people that have no history of depression and have pretty low seasonality don't show these responses. It's unique to SAD patients. So it's like, it's a very ingrained correlation to the yeah. concept of winter and, and perhaps a reminder, of this, a reminder of the symptoms. Yeah, I see it a as a, I see it as a, a learned or a conditioned response to these kinds of stimuli. These kinds of stimuli, meaning overcast and winter cues in the environment, have been repeatedly paired with feeling sad mm. in people that have history of sad of you know seasonal affective disorder, such that we can just show them a picture in a laboratory setting, even if it's yeah. summer outside, and we can see a shift towards negative affect, both in terms of how they say they feel, because we ask them also in a self-report, but also in terms of how their body is reacting physiologically. So this inspired my idea of maybe someday considering yeah. this exercise of, you know, mindfully looking out the window. Is, is there yeah. a way to kind of change that learned experience that we seem to be observing in these patients? I, yeah, that, I think there's so much value in that. And, and with mindfulness as well, it is, you know, a lot of studies and, and also personal experience of really 
stepping back and 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 cutting off habitual cycles and being able to kind of i guess present present moment awareness is the ability to just sit where you are notice information as we discussed earlier and and to move away from the concepts the kind of concepts that this image of of winter may trigger in in people mm-hmm. so i'm sure this it's got huge yeah huge value that kind of research yeah i really do see it as a a learned habit a learned way of responding mm-hmm. to winter and you can see how right where we are now in mid september some of these things might be kicking in for people even though it's still plenty warm and we have plenty of sunshine the days are getting shorter the leaves are just beginning to change these are exactly the kinds of seasonal cues mm. that people with this history begin to react to in terms of making subtle affective shifts right about now so th- this actually links in nicely to the as as i understand it the difference between a, a thinking process in itself and kind of core beliefs that we might hold mm-hmm. about ourselves about the the nature of the effect that winter has on us how much in, in your experience do you think that culture itself like, so i live in berlin and one of the first things people tell you when you first move to berlin is the berlin winters are horrible <laughs> you're, you're going to struggle our berlin winters and everyone talks about berlin winter being terrible and you kind of you're oh god yeah no it must be and i'm intrigued in how much this kind of messages assimilated and and we begin to believe it and that belief can then form thinking processes. Mhm. That's a great question. I had a similar experience when I moved from Maryland to Vermont in 2005 when I was interviewing for the job and they knew what my area was winter depression. So with mm. me everyone was saying Oh yeah, the winters are terrible here and your <laughs> and your research is really going to take off. This is the You've place for <laughs> this is the place for you. But now I've been here long enough to see other people come through to interview for faculty positions and the opposite approach is taken with them that we sort of feel people out to mm. see if they're going to be okay in the winter. <laughs> Do you have wintertime activities? Do you ski, especially if they're coming from a southern state because it can yeah. be quite a shock to move from a location like southern California, let's say, or Florida to the state of Vermont. Mm. So yeah, the culture here has definitely embraced the idea it sounds like the same as yours that winters are hard and terrible and we need to find a way to get through them. I I think this cultural context is very important. There's not been enough research attention to it in my view. One kind of fun thing to note perhaps is the prevalence of full-blown SAD in Iceland is mm-hmm. much lower than you would expect given its high latitude. It's in the range of 3 to 4%, but based on how far north it is, you would expect more like 9 to 10% of mm. individuals of Icelandic descent should have sad and way back in the 1800s there was a a group from Iceland that emigrated to Canada and they've been studied for their prevalence of sad apparently it's remained a relatively isolated population in terms of the mm. gene pool even for the group in Canada and they also have this low 
incidence of SAD, much lower than you would expect given their latitude. And it's interesting, the researchers that did that study conceptualized the results from a genetic standpoint. They argued, well, there must be some population selection that's taken place in that population. You know, perhaps people who have SAD, their genes sort of get filtered out of the gene pool if they don't make good mates and so on. Yeah. Um, And I thought, well, okay, you know, that's an interesting idea. But what about the culture? Yeah. What, what, and I don't know. I just recently flew to Copenhagen and touched down in Iceland for two hours. So I didn't have the chance to ask people around me if they could explain this phenomenon. But I, I wonder if there's something in Iceland that might insulate people against developing it, even though they should have a pretty high vulnerability mm. to develop it. Maybe there are things built into the culture to keep people engaged in the winter or kind of rallying around, okay, we we know we have this, we all slow down, but community kinds of sponsored events to keep people out there, keep them engaged. I'm just making things up because I don't know, but I wonder if there's something in that culture that insulates people. Well, if we have anyone from Iceland listening today, please, please get in touch with Kelly or me and we can yeah I'd love to hear an explanation for that that's not a genetic one because I think there must be an alternative explanation Mm. out there yeah and and that is um if if we were if we were going to look like historically I wonder if these kind of messages I'm not sure necessarily about Iceland and how that is is different but these messages and I'm just um this is just a theory but they could come from the times when you know, shelter was was a lot harder to come by and not as re- like resilient as it is now and not as society wasn't built up and winter really was. It, or it could be like a matter of survival. I wonder if those messages have <laughs> evolved, perhaps. That's a really fascinating idea. Mm. Hopefully you have some listeners from Iceland that can shed some light on that. Yeah. Um, I'm keen I'm keen to to move towards the way so if people are listening and they you know they're familiar with with winter depression or winter blues or generally a lower mood uh ways in which they can really improve and and change their perspective slightly on winter um so we, we've spoken about cbt and the restructuring of, of thoughts um and the way that we can kind of rationalize what are some behaviors that you recommend for people? Yeah, well, I think the, the behavioral piece of CBT that we call behavioral activation in the context of depression treatment is something that would benefit most people mm. at a high latitude in the winter. How can you keep yourself engaged if all of your interests are summer-centered and winter rolls around and you don't have a plan B? You're kind of in trouble. I think, because there's a relationship between pleasant activities and mood. The more pleasant activities that you do, the better your mood. So the question may be how to modify some of your summer-centric activities so that there's a way to stay engaged with them in the winter. For example, if you enjoy outdoor exercise, 
you can still do it in the wintertime. <laughs> you have to dress appropriately and you might yeah. be slightly inconvenienced by the extra five minutes that it takes to put on the long underwear and the ski pants and the gloves and appropriate clothing that you need to get out there and do it. But the opportunity exists. And I really try to model this for the people in my study. I walk or jog four miles a day year round, regardless mm. of the activity. Um, I think I draw the line at like negative 10, like when it gets there. That's and that's, impressive. that's only a few days, maybe three yeah. or four days a year here in the state of Vermont, or if we have like a foot of snow or something. Mm. Um, but even then I will put on snowshoes and I will find a way <laughs> to get it done because <laughs> For yeah. me personally, the benefit of getting that physical activity, um, part of it is being outside and breathing fresh air and admiring nature, but also just moving my body through space. All of those things yeah. are important for me to maintain a good mood. So I'm willing to go through the inconvenience of putting on extra clothing to not deprive myself of that activity during the winter months. Let's take the experience of visiting a beach. Um, you know, here we're located on Lake Champlain in the state of Vermont, and life very much centers around the lake. I always mm. point out to people, the lake doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> it's still there in the winter. Yeah. Is it a different experience to be on the lake in the winter? Yes. You need to be appropriately dressed. You're probably not going to be out there in a bikini basking in the sun in the middle of January. <laughs> But if, brave. if seeing the lake and experiencing it as something beautiful to look at in nature is an important part of your mood maintenance, there's a way to do it mm. in the winter. Maybe it's snowshoeing along the lake on the bicycle path that would be available for biking in the, in the warmer months. I used to, when I was a graduate student at the University of Maine, I really like there was a national park. There is a national park called Acadia National Park there that has the beautiful traditional Maine scenery with the cliffs, you know, plunging into the Atlantic. Mm. And I used to drive out there in the winter just to see it. You know, I'd be parked in my car sipping hot chocolate, yeah. but I still had the experience of looking at the waves coming. It was a different experience, but I had the experience in the winter. And certainly my mood benefited from that. If you are a gardener, and for whatever reason, at least here in the Northeastern U.S., a lot of people with sad, fancy gardening. It's a big <laughs> hobby of theirs. It brings a lot of enjoyment. So then, again, the question is, now it's winter. Now what? What can take mm. the place of that? We have had people take courses in learning how to cultivate flowers and even vegetables in the winter using lighting, you know, indoor greenhouses mm -hmm. that you can get as elaborate with it as you want to. Maybe it's as simple as just having a little herb garden that grows in yeah. the windowsill of the kitchen. There's if if that's an important part of your mood, seeing green things, cultivating plants, there's still a way to do it in the winter. Yeah. Does it take more effort? Yes, <laughs> but perhaps it's worth the effort if it brings you a sense of enjoyment and allows you to keep that aspect of your life. And it sounds very much like I get the impression that a big part of encouraging people with that behavior is almost to, is to reframe it as a fun challenge. 
So yeah. How can you how can you reframe and have fun with this rather than it feeling like a sacrifice? Yes. Something it's going to be there every year. Something about winter to look forward to. Mm. And, you know, maybe you could also view it if you're not one of these people who lo- who's sort of summer centric in their activities as a sanctuary of time. It might provide you time to learn something new. Yeah. Develop an altogether new hobby. Join a book club. Here in Vermont, we have a lot of knitting circles, drum circles, things like yeah. that, that are not season specific. Maybe learn yoga. Uh, mm. It's so individual. It's hard to talk about this broadly because it's whatever the person finds enjoyable. They should do more of that in the winter. I, ideally, could... including some things that really do embrace winter, you know, like mm. getting outside and experiencing those stimuli, you know, that we've been talking about yeah. head on snow, cold temperatures, dreary conditions while you're having fun. Because yeah. then you're pairing a new affective state with those stimuli instead of just these stimuli always mean feeling bad and feeling sad. And it's almost like you're, you're creating then new neurological pathways that could, could diminish the link. Yes. Between winter being something negative as well. Counter conditioning. Mm-hmm. So certainly if people do like to ski, ice skate, snowboard, snowshoe, those are perfect activities to do more of. You, of course, have to dress appropriately. And I keep bringing this up because that often <laughs> comes up as a barrier when yeah. we're talking to people about implementing these. Oh, but, you know, then I got to put on the ski pants and the thick socks and the gloves and the this yeah. and the that. But, yes, let's think, how long does that really take? It shouldn't take any more than five to ten minutes or you're doing something wrong in terms of (laughs) struggling with the how you're approaching that task so again isn't it worth it that extra five to ten minutes of hassle if you get to experience the activity and what's the alternative what would it mean not to do the activity it probably means staying stuck in hibernation mode ruminating Mm -hmm. and we know that that is not beneficial so there's quite a few different elements to that you've got if someone is struggling a little bit they can spend some time to look at the thoughts and to rationalize to see the kind of distortions and then to look at what are the what are the things I enjoy this is an exercise I think I'm actually going to do myself (laughs) Um, (laughs) but like what are the things I enjoy in summer because I'm very much I I wouldn't say I've ever experienced sad to an extreme but I've certainly had like winter blues and like low energy. And I think a valuable exercise is just going through and listening to all the things that I really enjoy, mm-hmm. the reasons I enjoy them, and then seeing what I could kind of, um, where I could get those values and, and the, the kind of distill from that things that I'll enjoy in, in winter as well. Yeah, one thing we haven't perhaps touched on that's important is social activities. Mm. People who have full-blown seasonal affective disorder tend to withdraw from other people. They may even stop answering the phone come fall. Mm. Social activities for most people have important antidepressant qualities. So I would encourage people to stay connected with individuals in their lives who are natural antidepressants. The people that you spend time with and you inevitably end up feeling good 
Um, mm. We probably don't want to spend more time with people that bring us down in the winter. Yeah, that's the opposite <laughs> but, effect. <laughs> but you can be selective. You know who these yeah. people are in your life. The the friend that you could meet for coffee or lunch. Those those little shots of social activities. Yeah. Think of them as natural antidepressants. Instead of doing the natural pattern or habit that we've talked about where you withdraw from people and you don't answer mm. the phone, do the opposite. <laughs> Take yeah. these opportunities to get at least little shots of social activities here and there because they will boost your mood. And the key is to do that even when every fiber of your being sometimes is saying, oh, just stay in, it's cold outside. Yes. To be able to just take action, to walk out the door, to work on those thoughts Yes. see where they're coming from and actually just to put yourself in that situation. That's the biggest barrier for most people mm-hmm. is the negative self-talk in terms of the motivation to follow through. And this is why the scheduling is so important, I think. If you've made the arrangements with a friend to meet them on a Thursday for coffee mm-hmm. at noon, you're likely to follow through with that. Yeah. I always have people think in advance, at least one day in advance. What are you What are you planning for tomorrow? And how yeah. can we make sure that that'll happen? Because the barrier is going to be the negative thoughts. We can just bank on them. They're going to show mm. up and they're going <laughs> to get in the way. So yeah. whatever we can do to structure this so that you just, even if it's just going through the motions, again, when you're getting started, it's better than the alternative, which is not doing the activity. And And it is, it's, uh, it's something you mentioned earlier, I think is really important. It is well, not necessarily guaranteed, but there's a high chance that if you've made, if you're someone who does suffer in winter and you've made social plans, you might wake up that morning and feel like, oh, it's dark, it's raining, I don't want to stick to it. But the importance mm-hmm. is just to to stick to that, knowing that I, I like what you say about what is the alternative. That's mm-hmm. a really good way of looking at it mm-hmm. and, and kind of, considering okay well if I don't go on this this social event I am just going to stay in my room in the dark probably think more um yeah so I think that's a really good way of of approaching it as well Mm -hmm. and if you've committed to meet another person for something there's also that (laughs) that you don't want to cancel on that Mm. person you've made sort of a commitment to follow through yeah and and doing it in advance so you, you don't you're not put off by trying to be spontaneous when you're not necessarily on top form. Right. At least when we're learning these new habits, hopefully once they become ingrained, they can be more spontaneous. But when you're first getting started trying to undo a, a long learned behavioral pattern, mm. such as having winter depression and all the all that that means for what your routines are like. It does kind of need to be structured to get started, just like learning anything new. Yeah. And in the um, in the realm of habit and, and kind of relapse, I think it's really interesting. We've not spoken too much about some of your trials and, and what you discovered. But I was quite fascinated to see that CBT is, is tends to be more effective than light therapy, not necessarily in one run or, or one trial, but in preventing relapse mm-hmm. a little longer down the line. Yeah, we have now three completed randomized clinical trials comparing CBT-SAD to light therapy. Light therapy is the established treatment for winter depression. It involves sitting in front of a device first thing in the morning that emits bright, full-spectrum light, simulates Mm. the light coming from the sky at sunrise. 
And so far, all of these studies have um, essentially replicated the same result where we find both light therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy are effective treatments for improving an acute episode of winter depression across six weeks in the winter. However, when we follow people into future winters after we have treated them, we see less severe depressive symptoms and fewer relapses of depression following cognitive behavioral therapy than following light therapy. Mm. So the cognitive behavioral therapy seems to be a treatment that keeps on giving where you, we think, learn new skills as we've been discussing, these new ways Mm. of responding to cues as the seasons are changing. And you have a kind of toolbox from which to draw to cope as the seasons are changing. You can practice your cognitive therapy in terms of saying rational responses to these negative thoughts when they surface. And you can change your behavior by engaging Mm. in these pleasurable activities instead of going into hibernation mode. So it seems to be a robust finding in that we've replicated it three times. We do have another study currently underway where we're seeking 160 community adults with winter depression in the greater Burlington, Vermont area. We're going to treat everybody with either light therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy and follow them for two years. But the new grant um, is going to focus on understanding the mechanisms through which these treatments work, specifically to offset recurrence following cognitive behavioral therapy. Our current, our granting agency here in the United States, the National Institute of Health, is very interested in treatment mechanisms right now, particularly at the level of biomarkers, what might be changing in the body mm-hmm. to drive an antidepressant effect and an effective treatment. So that's going to be the focus of this new project, which is just starting up. Our ads begin to run this weekend. Oh, nice. And and um, to to draw us to a close, I'd love to just run two or three thinking processes I've noticed in myself. Sure, I'm let's do it. Completely, completely taking advantage of this opportunity, but I thought, why not? <laughs> it sounds fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've, I've got a few that I've noticed, and, and if you could identify what kind of distortion it is and a potential way of rationalizing and balancing that thought. Um, So one of them is that I'm noticing at this time of year is kind of jumping ahead and thinking, I won't cope getting out of bed early in the darkness. So the cognitive distortion would be fortune telling because a prediction is being made. Mm. Soon I won't be able to cope getting out of bed in the darkness. So we're, we're foretelling only negative consequences coming this way in the future. So we would, in honor of Socrates, <laughs> begin <laughs> with, you know, let's take a look at that What's thought. What's the evidence? What's the evidence that you can't cope? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you woke up in the dark and you were able to get out of bed? Or is this every single time? Waking up in the darkness, never being able to get out of bed. I think in my entire life, probably 90% of of dark mornings I've managed to get out of bed. Maybe (laughs) even 95. (laughs) Wow, okay. So that's interesting because the prediction sort of implied that it's 100% of the time. But if Mm. we look at your own experience, it seems that it's problematic 
only 10% of the time. Mm. So that's an important thing to note right off the bat, that 90% of the time you find a way. Life goes on, right? You're able to rise and somehow get on with your day. So let's look at the other 10%. What's going on? Maybe you can think back to an example. You wake up in the dark. What what's getting in the way of that? I I I think it's not so much if I've had work obligations. I don't think I've ever missed work from that. But if it's a weekend and I've got social plans, the darkness I think makes me feel low on energy. So I wake up a bit less on uh, less energized and kind of think I'm going to be too tired to socialize almost. Mm-hmm. And, he, and if it's raining as well, it's like, oh, I'm going to get wet. It's going to, you know, I'm going to be cold, miserable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, my yeah, gosh. So that's quite a this lot. Is, going on there, this is a runaway train of fortune telling, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which it's interesting because it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Right. That mm. here's the stimulus. You wake up. Maybe the sun's not up yet because we're beyond the winter solstice or whatever. And it's dark and all of these negative predictions come out yeah but you know i just noted in what you said regarding evidence that it's never been to the point of missing work Mm. so somehow you're able to rally through this and get where you need to go Um, and of course we're talking about cognitive restructuring but i can't help help but notice some of what you're describing now is related to cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia it's called cbti the mm. protocol of um, when you wake up in the morning, immediately open up those, the blinds, the wind, la- the light in that is available. If you're feeling tired, you might develop a morning routine around listening to some upbeat music, something that will mm. sort of like doing the opposite. <laughs> and, yeah. and it also makes sense from a circadian perspective in that, your body may still be in a state of biological night. You're probably still making the hormone of darkness, melatonin, being produced Mm. by the pineal gland. So it kind of makes sense. The alarm clock's going off and the body's going, but wait a minute, it's still biological night. I should be sleeping. The CBTI protocol would say you need to get up, even though you don't feel like it, get some light into the room and get into sort of a morning groove routine that's mm-hmm. invigorating and activating to, to yeah. bring yourself out of that. And they've got really good data to show that, that this actually works. And it's one of those things you got to go through the motions initially, just like the behavioral activation we were talking about. But yeah. if you can rally and do it, it becomes a habit. So I couldn't help but go there because (laughs) this particular scenario (laughs) that you brought up was so relevant to that particular strategy that might help you on that 10% of the time that you struggle with this. The other 90%, it sounds like, is fine. So I know we're we're doing kind of a scratch-the-surface exercise here, but a rational response based on so far what we've talked about might include something like, I am able to get up out of bed, even in the darkness, 90% of the time. This has never been to the extent that I've missed work or had really serious consequences. Kind of reiterating those things. As soon as you have those thoughts, instead of going down that runaway train of fortune telling Mm. of all the other bad implications that will follow in the course of a day. 
And that in turn will reduce the kind of anxiety and stress I can imagine. Yeah. And it should change the behavior. It should facilitate Mm. kind of getting up when, when and if this negative thought rears its head. That was, and ironically as well, I actually wrote an article last year on a a winter morning routine. So maybe I need to reread my own (laughs) article. Um, I've got one more. I won't take too much more of your time with, with these kind of questions, but there's one that I noticed that is slightly different and it's quite interesting and it could maybe have quite a different approach, but it is this thought of now we're in September. I mean, we've next week in Berlin, fortunately will be nice but let's say you get to October November sometimes I notice the thought that says oh it's, it's going to be ages until I get nice weather again mm-hmm. in a very negative way like oh the sun's gone now until May mm-hmm. yep Ricky you are a fortune teller <laughs> <laughs> maybe in a previous life <laughs> that that is your cognitive distortion but there's okay, also an, to know. <laughs> there's also an element of magnification there right mm. i heard a sort of implicit and this will be terrible yeah in terms of putting an effective label on that so yeah like it's, it's not it's going to be detrimental essentially by mm-hmm. not having that sun mm-hmm. so again we would begin by saying What's the evidence for that? So tell me, what is the evidence for that based on your experience? I think probably more than the getting out of bed, because by February and March, my mood generally, I do feel quite low on energy. Um, more, more interestingly, more so than November, December, mm-hmm. even January. It, it tends to get towards the tail end of winter when, and I notice that my, my mood is a bit lower. Mm-hmm. and my energy yeah and what's been the real implication of this in your life in terms mm. of your ability to function and you know do the things that you need to do mainly um probably probably may in the main just telling people that i don't like winter uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> still getting on with things and just feeling sorry for myself <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah it's not something I, I don't think it's it's not hugely affected it's maybe made me cut back on exercise a little bit mm-hmm. um perhaps led to generally a bit of a lower mood that is, is reduced motivation to do things so maybe yeah, maybe a bit of less so- socialization actually mm-hmm. yep tell me have you ever had a really positive pleasant day in the winter time Yes. What were some of the things that were happening then? If you don't mind sharing a little bit. like Oh, no, absolutely. Um, in Berlin, I do really like the Christmas markets. They're really nice. Um, and that's actually, yeah, we could go off on a, another tangent, but I find that after Christmas, it is a, it's a, uh, that's when it tends to get a little harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also had some, some really nice times um i actually met my current partner in february last year <laughs> so mm-hmm. that, i guess i guess that counts as a <laughs> mm-hmm. as a positive um and generally yeah more more indoors based but i definitely have had a lot of good good moments that kind of pierce the the fog mm-hmm. yeah and in the summer 
Is there sometimes a bad day, like maybe even perhaps a day where you'd have the same kinds of experience in terms of how you're feeling in the winter? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I for, for me, I tend to find that in the back of my mind, I have a default setting, which says I can just go outside and, and sit in a park in the sun mm-hmm. if I'm in, in low mood. And I notice that when the weather's not like that, I feel like it's something I can't access. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's interesting just listening for a few moments to you speak about your experience across different seasons. Mm. I I hear, tell me if I'm wrong, that, you know, you can have your ups and your downs. You can have a really good day in the winter. You can have a bad day in the summer. Mm. And it kind of depends on what's happening then. The Christmas market, and I assume, you know, that means a lot of pretty things to look at and a yeah. lot of um, community-sponsored events and a lot of activity. So perhaps a rational response would be, you know, just that, that winter has its ups and downs, um, yeah. summer can too. Uh, so we don't necessarily have to go to the place of it's dark today, it's all going to be bad, this is going to be never ending. Also reminding ourselves that it is temporary, right? I mean, mm, yeah. winter is not never ending, it's time delimited, um, spring is always on the horizon. Of course, yeah. we don't want to live only for spring and summer, right? Because then you're yeah, only living for through. half of your life. So <laughs> yeah. your life is now. You have to live your life yeah. no matter what, no matter what season it is. And if I were working clinically with somebody who reported what you said about in the summer, I can always go sit on a park bench. I would mm. want to think, well, what could be the alternative to that? So it sounds like that's really important. That's a way to clear your mind and have Mm. an antidepressant moment. Is there a way to create a similar space and experience like that in the winter? It might not be sitting on the park bench, uh, but maybe there's another place that you could go and uh, practice mindfulness or whatever it is Mm. that you're doing that makes that experience so positive for you in the winter, or maybe it is the park bench <laughs> with that yeah. understanding that is it going to be different, a be different cold. experience in the winter? Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean it couldn't bring some kind of enjoyment if you dress appropriately and still appreciate the beauty of nature or breathing the fresh mm. air, whatever it is, that's part of that experience that makes it a good one for you. Yeah. And that's, that's something that my, uh, my mom always used to go, go on at me for not buying a good enough winter coat but I actually do have one now so I'm making small steps Maybe I, need, <laughs> I need some long johns and I can go and sit in the park <laughs> um but no Kelly thank you so much for taking the time it's 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 really valuable and and your work is is having a huge impact and and I'm sure that anyone that's listening today they'll, they'll get a lot of value from all the things that we've discussed I hope so thank you for having me brilliant it's been an absolute pleasure Likewise. Thank you. Happy winter. Yeah, bring it on. I'm ready. (laughs) Bye. 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 Thank you for tuning in to the Mind That Ego podcast. You can find more content at mindthatego.com. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. I would be very, very grateful. Until next time, be well.